Hello there, Geraldine Doog with you this afternoon, bringing you a rich hour of big ideas. Today with part four of our 2003 Boyer Lecture Series, some selections of 20th century jazz, and a short story by Indian novelist R.K. Narayan. This year our Boyer Lecturer is Owen Harris, a senior fellow at the Centre for Independent Studies in Sydney. He recently returned to live in Australia after many years in Washington, D.C., where he was editor-in-chief from 1985 to 2001 of the Washington-based foreign policy journal The National Interest. This afternoon's lecture, Civilizations and Cultures, Clashing or Merging. And today we plunge right into the big debates of the last two decades. We'll revisit the Asian values debate. Remember that one? We'll speculate about clashes of civilization and consider globalization. The underlying emphasis throughout is the way culture has forced itself into international relations analysis, demanding different responses from all the players. Also today, plenty of jazz. You'll hear from performers Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Duke Ellington and many more of the legends. But first here is our 2003 Boyer Lecture Series with Owen Harris. Until very recently, the terms civilization and culture played a very modest role in the discussion of international politics. They were sometimes resorted to rhetorically, of course, and culture has been a standard minor tool in the foreign policy kits of states, using the British Council or the Bolshoi Ballet to burnish one's image, that sort of thing. But what has been the dominant theory of international politics in the West in the last 50 years, realism, allows no significant role for civilizational or cultural factors as crucial variables in international politics. The older classical realism, represented by the vastly influential Professor Hans Morgenthau, posits a universal, unchanging human nature, containing strong components of aggression and insecurity, as the key to the behaviour of states, speaking of objective laws that have their roots in a human nature that has not changed since the classical philosophies of China, India and Greece. In these terms, cultural differences are trivial and unimportant. Later realists, those labelled structural or neorealists, put the emphasis not on human nature, but on the structure of the international system, and in particular on the fact that states coexist in a condition of anarchy. But again, they allow no significant role for cultural factors. States are typically treated as so many billiard balls, obeying the laws of political physics and geometry, so to speak, but whose inner composition is not considered relevant in determining behaviour. But the principal explanation of why cultures and the differences between them have played such a small role in the study of international politics is, surely, that until very recently, virtually all serious relations between states took place within one civilization, Western civilization. Power politics was a Western game, so the question of the significance of basic cultural differences simply didn't arise. Countries of other civilizations were the objects of international politics, not subjects, not active participants in it. 
As such, they were usually dealt with under the heading of colonial policy and were subject to different kinds of theorising and moralising. As John Stuart Mill, the most enlightened liberal of his day, pronounced in 1859, to suppose the same international customs and the same rules of international morality can obtain between one civilised nation and another, and between civilised nations and barbarians, is a grave error, and one which no statesman can fall into. When Mill discussed civilization, he did so in the singular, not the plural. For a long time, the only serious exception to all this was Japan, and for the most part Japan was dealt with as an honorary member of the West, one of the club, something that its eagerness to copy and borrow from the West made plausible. Now all this has changed. It's changed because of two interrelated processes. First, with the rapid dismantling of European empires after World War II, and with the spectacular economic progress of some East Asian countries, a number of non-Western states have become significant international players. Second, there has been the rapid progress of the phenomena known as globalization and modernization, terms that refer not only to the creation of an integrated worldwide economy, but which envisage that economy as carrying with it a homogenizing global culture that will supplement and probably progressively displace particular local cultures. These two developments raise interesting and important issues concerning the interplay between culture and international politics in the post-Cold War world. The two most influential attempts to discuss these, that of Francis Fukuyama in The End of History and that of Samuel Huntington in The Clash of Civilizations, give very different answers to those questions. Fukuyama argues that in a world in which liberal democracy and capitalism have triumphed, and there is no longer ideological conflict, international relations will be progressively dominated by economic concerns rather than old-style power politics, which in Fukuyama's view was the product of ideology, not of an anarchical international system. The importance of military force will diminish as the likelihood of large-scale titanic conflicts between states recedes there will be what he calls a growing common marketization of international relations, in which technical, economic and environmental problems will replace strategic and geopolitical ones, and in which more and more of the actors share a modern, liberal democratic political culture. He concedes that, for some time in the transition period, there will continue to be conflicts among those states that are still, in his terms, mired in history, and between them and states that have already reached the end state of liberal capitalism, but these will constitute a residual phenomenon and will gradually disappear. Ultimately, the world will be a more culturally homogeneous and harmonious place, even, he suggests, to the point of being boring. Samuel Huntington of Harvard argues a very different thesis. That a shrinking world, more interaction between peoples of different civilizations, and in particular the impact of Western culture on non-Western states, 
will, in his words, invigorate differences and animosities. The process of economic modernization and the social change that it brings with it threaten traditional cultures and weaken the sense of traditional identity. This creates a reaction, often in the form of fundamentalist versions of religion. The pressure of the West creates a desire in other civilizations not only to resist, but to compete, to attempt to shape the world in non-Western ways. Once conflicts were between monarchies, then between nation-states, then between ideologies. From now on, increasingly, Huntington maintains, they will be between civilizations. A decade ago, Huntington made the important point that while in the past it was the elites of other cultures who became westernized, while the general populace remained within the traditional cultures, the process has now been reversed. It is the masses who are now being influenced by popular western culture, while increasingly educated elites are rejecting westernization and reasserting allegiance to their traditional civilization, often in its most militant and assertive form. And as September 11 demonstrated, this is a much more dangerous state of affairs. Ten years ago, the two civilizations that Huntington saw as the main challengers of the West were the Confucian and the Muslim civilizations, and he anticipated an alliance between them. He picked the right two as challengers, but was mistaken about an alliance. The nature of the challenges posed by the two civilizations is very different. That from the Confucian civilization is a challenge resulting from spectacular economic success and rapid modernization. That from the Muslim civilization, or at least from the Arab part of it, is a challenge resulting from failure and frustration in those processes. In the case of the spectacular economic success of East Asia, the first question, obviously, has been how and why did it happen? It needed explanation because it was quite unanticipated. In the past, the Confucian culture had been held responsible for China's economic backwardness, not just by the communists but by Chinese nationalist leaders like Sun Yat-sen and Westerners who believed that Confucianism was incompatible with the virtues represented by the Puritan ethic, which were deemed to be essential prerequisites for the success of capitalism. But looked at again in the light of astonishing success, a re-evaluation has taken place. Confucianism, or more broadly what are termed Asian values, have come to be seen as crucial ingredients of that success. These values include a strong work ethic, a commitment to family and clan, the high value placed on education and a high rate of saving, and the importance attached to networking and personal trust. But if these values help explain economic success, a second question poses itself. Can they survive that success? Or will the development of a capitalist economy inevitably bring with it its own values and mode of behaviour, which will displace both traditional values and the authoritarian practices they give rise to in countries as different as China and Singapore. Put differently, 
Will the logic and values of free market economics prevail, or those of history and culture? By the 1990s, these questions were of more than theoretical interest. On the one hand, the United States, apprehensive at the rapid economic rise of Asia, outraged by the Tiananmen Square massacre of 1989, and no longer needing China to balance the Soviet Union, were pressing China hard on human rights issues. On the other hand, the success of their booming economies put the Asian countries in no mood to be lectured to. Indeed, if anything, they were prepared to deliver a lecture or two of their own to a West that was experiencing a combination of economic and social problems. The result was what became known as the Asian Values Debate of the 1990s. In this debate, the Asian case was most vigorously argued, not by the Chinese, but by Singaporeans, including Lee Kuan Yew himself. Lee wove together several arguments. Culture, he insisted, must be taken very seriously. Values are formed out of the history and experience of the people, are absorbed with the mother's milk. They are not learned from a book and cannot be imposed from without. An act of Congress can't change China. Confucianism values the group and the community over the individual and sets great importance on order. Order is particularly important to China with its still recent historical experience of internal chaos, mass starvation, civil war, invasion and humiliation by Western states and Japan. And also given its awesome task of governing 1.3 billion people. But it is important for Southeast Asia as well, for until quite recently, this was one of the most unstable regions in the world. In the progress of a country, Lee insisted, sequence is important. Order is a condition for economic growth, and economic growth is a condition for a loosening and mellowing of political control. One must not put carts before horses, to attempt to introduce a great deal of individual freedom too soon will risk both order and economic progress. Had the United States been as demanding towards Taiwan and South Korea on human rights and democracy in the 1960s, as it was now towards China, Lee argued, those countries would never have experienced their economic miracles. Again, Lee insisted that the days are over when Confucian countries and the rest of the world simply take their instructions from the West and adapt to its ways. What will occur from now on will not be a hierarchical relationship, but an interaction among civilizations, a Darwinian process of selection, whereby each culture borrows from others in terms of what works best and suits its needs. While Lee Kuan Yew, in his role as philosopher king, stayed on the high ground, some of the other Singaporeans were happy to go on the counter-attack against the United States in the spirit of, physician, heal thyself. This, for example, is Kishore Mabubani, one of Singapore's senior diplomats and currently its representative at the UN, writing in 1993. 
Freedom does not only solve problems, it can also cause them. The United States has undertaken a massive social experiment, tearing down social institution after social institution that restrained the individual. The results have been disastrous. Since 1960, the US population has increased 41%, while violent crime has risen by 560%, divorce rates by 300%, and the percentage of children living in single-parent homes by 300%. This is massive social decay. But instead of travelling overseas with humility, Americans confidently preach the virtues of unfettered individual freedom, blithely ignoring the visible social consequences. There are, of course, powerful counter-arguments that can be made against all these points. How can one trust authoritarian rulers to make impartial judgments concerning when the time is ripe to relax discipline and move to a freer society? when it is their own power that is at stake. The Singapore regime that Lee himself created has long ago achieved the order and prosperity, the need for which was originally used to justify its illiberal practices, but it still shows no sign of loosening up. Again, while order is a legitimate and important value, a successful market economy also needs enterprise innovation and invention, which in turn require intellectual freedom. In these respects, the Asian economies have made little progress and are still parasitic on the allegedly decaying Western countries. When discussing Asian values, why no mention of the pervasive corruption and cronyism that characterise all Confucian societies except Singapore itself. And finally, the fact that it's possible for Mabubani and others to criticise the United States in the terms he does indicates the openness and self-critical nature of American society and its capacity for self-correction. For the facts about America's problems that he cites are made public by the American government. After all, who'd believe comparable statistics about itself given out by the secretive Chinese regime. Turning briefly to the case of Islam and Islamic civilization, since September the 11th, this is a subject that has received saturation coverage from both genuine and alleged experts, and I have little to add. The questions raised are important ones. Is militant Islamism a true reflection of Islam and its values? or a perversion of them? To what extent are those who speak of a righteous sense of Arab victimhood and a tradition of belligerent self-pity speaking of something real, the result of the decline of a once great civilization and its failure to adapt to modernity? Is a culture in which legitimacy and authority derive not from the people, but from the Sharia, the law of God, in which great importance is attached to maintaining consensus and disagreement and division are considered dangerous, and in which hierarchy and status prevail over the principle of equality, are those who insist that such a culture is incompatible with democracy correct? 
or are those correct who believe in the universality of liberal democratic values, that given the opportunity, all people everywhere will opt for them? Many answers to those and other questions have been given over the last two years, and it's very difficult for a non-specialist to adjudicate among them. In any case, I believe that argument based on alleged cultural traits should be approached cautiously and with some scepticism. They can often be simply false, as the confident claim concerning the incompatibility of capitalism and Confucianism turned out to be. And they can sometimes be used in a relativistic and obscurantist way to deny the objectivity and validity of any assumption and argument. For example, some have claimed that the work of the recently deceased Edward Said on Orientalism set out to delegitimize Western scholarship on the Middle East by claiming that it was all based on unstated Western assumptions and values, which in turn reflected Western power and the will to dominate. In any case, it's important to recognize the complexity and diversity and ambiguities that exist within cultures, as well as their capacity to change, sometimes rapidly. Cultures are not monolithic and they are not static. After all, think of how much and how quickly Western values and practices have changed in the last 40 years. Let us turn now to the second process that is making the question of culture increasingly relevant and important in international affairs, which is globalization. That term refers in the first place, as I've said, to the very rapid development of an integrated and open world economy, driven in its latest phase by the revolution in information and communication technology. As well as its economic consequences, that development and those technologies have far-reaching cultural and political implications and consequences, and about these, again, there are sharp differences of opinion. Some believe that there is emerging a global culture that, reflecting the reality of growing interdependence, will be conducive to harmony and peace and will provide the basis for a global civil society. Others are much more sceptical, believing that the novelty and importance of recent changes are greatly exaggerated. And still others worry that, while the fact of globalization is real enough, its consequences will be bad rather than good, resulting in the destruction of traditional communities and their replacement by a homogenized vulgar and alien culture. The optimistic view of globalization is based on one or more of three assumptions. First is the belief in the primacy of economics over politics. This invites the conclusion that the unprecedented growth of interdependence and integration in the economic sphere will carry over into the political and that it will bind the interests of states and people closer together, reducing rivalry, promoting complementarity and making conflict increasingly unattractive and expensive. Second is the belief that suspicion, hostility and conflict are caused essentially by ignorance and misunderstanding rather than genuine conflicts of interest. Adherents of this school 
subscribe to the novelist E.M. Forster's well-known dictum, Only Connect. As access to information becomes virtually unlimited, it is argued, and as communication becomes cheap and instantaneous, the world is shrinking and becoming Marshall McLuhan's global village, in which ignorance and suspicion of what is alien are drastically reduced. And third is the belief that a world which has up to now been dominated by the vertical divisions between states is being replaced by one dominated by horizontal forces capital, technology, information, entertainment which move freely across the Earth's surface recognising no impediments, no frontiers. We are, it is claimed, moving rapidly towards a borderless world in which the power and importance of nation-states are rapidly diminishing, in which global networks and cross-border cultures and loyalties are thriving. How do the sceptics, and let me make it clear I'm one of them, respond to all this? With some or all of the following arguments. First, the claim of the uniqueness of the present level of economic interdependence is false, or at the very least grossly exaggerated. In terms of trade and capital flows, measured as percentages of gross domestic product, the level of interdependence at the end of the 20th century was approximately what it had been at the beginning of that century. And financial markets were about as integrated a hundred years ago as they are now. Moreover, precisely the same claims that interdependence was making political conflict and war counterproductive, if not obsolescent, were being made then, a hundred years ago, by people like the English pacifist Norman Angel in his influential book The Great Illusion. But the terrible carnage of World War I and World War II was soon to prove this belief in the primacy of economic forces over nationalist loyalties to be utterly false. Second, the proposition that the main cause of conflict is ignorance and misunderstanding between peoples doesn't bear serious examination. Some of the most savage conflicts in history have been civil wars in which the people involved knew each other very well indeed. And in today's world, no two groups know each other better than the Palestinians and the Israelis, unless they be the Catholics and Protestants of Northern Ireland. Indeed, one can take the point further and point out that the chance of being murdered by someone one knows, and knows well, is much higher than by a stranger. And that people who use the term global village as a metaphor for peace and harmony have very little acquaintance with real villages and the degree of envy, rivalry and malice that their intimacy can not only accommodate but foster. As for the alleged weakening of states and their increasing displacement as the major international actors, it might be worth beginning with a reminder that a century and a half have now passed since Marx and Engels in their Communist Manifesto declared the coming withering away of states. In the interim, states have shown themselves to be extremely tough 
durable and adaptable institutions, still the only entities that most people are prepared to fight and die for. Indeed, the history of the last hundred years is one of the increasing growth of state power, not its diminution. Consider, for example, how much of the gross domestic product states now appropriate as compared with what they did a century ago. Those who predict a severe decline in the power of states do so largely on the basis of the anticipated effects of the revolution in information technology, which include the empowering of non-governmental organisations, the creation of transnational networks and the ending of government control over information as secrecy becomes more and more difficult to maintain. But the argument tends to ignore the fact that states themselves are among the most effective users of this new technology. Indeed, the organisation that has so far made the most spectacular successful use of it is the American military to transform its war-fighting capacity. None of these criticisms should be interpreted as a denial that globalization has important cultural consequences, including the introduction of important new actors and norms of behavior. The aspect that is most obvious and that has received most attention is perhaps the global spread of American popular culture. But in terms of international relations, other elite dimensions of the phenomenon may turn out to be much more important. The sociologist Peter Berger has identified two cultural phenomena which he characterizes as Davos culture, after the annual World Economic Summit that meets in that Swiss resort, and Faculty Club International. The former is exemplified and carried by international business. The latter by foundations, academic networks, a proliferating number of non-governmental organisations and think tanks. To some extent they overlap. Both are elite cultures, their lifestyles and tastes have much in common, and members of Faculty Club International frequently act as economic advisors for members of the Davos culture, as, for example, the Harvard Institute for International Development did in Russia throughout the 1990s. But just as often, the two are at odds, with some non-governmental organisations and academics being the most dedicated and effective critics of the economic globalisation promoted by the Davos culture. The anthropologist Janine Weddell maintains that these cultures are producing a new kind of international actor and organisation. She calls them transactors, whose outstanding characteristic is their flexible, adaptable, chameleon-like character. They adopt multiple roles and identities and are largely unaccountable to anyone. They often work outside formal channels their nationality is becoming increasingly irrelevant, their loyalties and interests are changeable. As she says of the Harvard Institute people, to suit the transactor's purpose, the same individual could represent the United States in one meeting and Russia in the next, 
and perhaps himself at a third, regardless of national origin. They are, she sums up, members of an exclusive and highly mobile multinational club, whose rules and regulations have yet to be written. Who will write those rules, and to whom, if anyone, these new elites will be made accountable, are among the really important questions of this era. I wonder if the words mercenary, it has an altogether different connotation, doesn't it? Owen Harries, with part four of his 2003 Boyer lecture, Benign or Imperial? Reflections on American Hegemony. Next week, Owen will be looking at those challenging America's vision in his fifth lecture, simply entitled Challenges. And Owen Harries is a senior fellow at the Centre for Independent Studies in Sydney. This is ABC Radio National, and you're listening to Big Ideas with Geraldine Doog this week. And coming up, a short story by Indian writer R.K. Narayan. <laughs> 